We're so excited to have Liz, AKA the Black Nursery Manager on the first series of the Mama Magic Podcast brought to you by the Glow Mama Awards. The Glow Mama Awards are the first people's choice awards celebrating the achievements of mothers on social media. Starting in the UK, Glow Mama is a global movement celebrating motherhood and amplifying our unique stories in the digital age. We are proud to bring exclusive off-the-grid content exploring Glow Mama finalists and winners' unique journeys and experiences of motherhood. Get to know the mamas off the grid without the filters, reels, music in the background. Raw and honest conversations with the mamas that we follow on the grid. So everybody, let's give it up for Liz. You recently won the Guardian Angel Award at the fourth annual Glow Mama Award. What did this win mean to you? What an honor, Agnes. Number one, to be nominated for such a beautiful category. And then to my absolute surprise, to win, to have that announcement on the evening and hear my name called out was so exciting and so humbling and so overwhelming. And thank you. Thank you for creating these awards. Thank you for putting on that evening. Thank you for making sure that category existed and making sure that people feel seen as well within the category of just being a glow mama, what that means, because it encapsulates so much. So first of all, thank you to you, Agnes, as I said on the stage on that night, like big up you, big up you, clapping, cheering, whooping, hollering. Um, Yeah. So it meant a lot, I guess, because the work that I do primarily is focused within the early years and the early years sector as part of the education sector as a whole is quite a tight knit circle in that we are doing work within a sector which primarily focuses on children aged 0 to 5. But within that, there are lots of kind of different um I would say silos. So we branch out. So you could be a childminder, you could work as an early years educator um, in a private or voluntary independent nursery. You could work in a maintained nursery school. You could be a reception teacher. You could be a key stage one teacher. But these are all things that are covered under the umbrella of early years. And so to be, as I said, nominated by the Glow Mama Awards, because it's an award ceremony that exists, I guess, outside of the early years sector, even though you're focusing on motherhood, the recognition for me meant even more because it showed me how quickly and how far reaching the work that I am doing is going. And so it was, as I said, overwhelming, humbling, but just so exciting to see how people were responding to my work who didn't necessarily work directly with children in a professional capacity. This felt like an award from the people, from the communities, and really kind of delivered by the communities as well. It wasn't, you know, this official awarding body who had been checking the, um, you know, not the quality of my work, but which early years organizations I've been working with or what awards I'd got before. I really felt that this was something that was organic and the people on the grid rooted for me. They voted for me. And that meant the world (laughs) particularly. Yeah, because, you know, I started this on a platform you know, Instagram, which was just really to get my message out. Never did I think it would grow in the way that it's grown over the near two years, the way that it has. People are thirsty for the conversation pertaining to anti-racism in the early years. 
And can and can we can we touch on that? Because that was my next question. You know, how did you start? Why did you start? Um, you know, in what ways? Why did you think this was such an important topic? Um, and why do you think your work has taken off in the way that it has? Because, you know, when we're talking about anti-racist work and the early years and naught to five, you know, for a lot of people that might think, well, you know, what does a naught to five year old know about racism? So do you want to expand a bit on, on what is it that you do? What's your journey? I know there's so many different questions I've asked in there. Um, so you can start with one by one and I, I can touch on them. Um, but I've got so much to ask you and to kind of get stuck in with you today. Absolutely, Agnes. So I'll go through it from the start. For me, my professional journey started um, in the early years in 2004. So my mother owned Children's Day Nursery, still owns a Children's Day Nursery now, but we had three day nurseries and she started the business in the late 80s. And as I said, I joined the business officially in 2004. And when I joined the business, one of my mother's nurseries um, in Edgbaston in Birmingham, any Birmingham listeners, I'm here, I'm representing. Um, the nursery that she had in Edgbaston, I came into thinking about what it meant to be embedded within a very richly diverse, racially diverse community. Because of where the nursery was geographically located, it straddled to very different areas in terms of socioeconomic, um, in terms of race, faith, culture, ethnicity and so we had a whole host of different communities engaging with the nursery but there seemed to be something that was kind of happening more often than not and it was that more and more black children and families were accessing the nursery just before I came in because of this thing around cultural compatibility and the need to kind of have parents let their children see themselves reflected, not just in the other children that attended, but also in terms of the practitioners and the staff that work there, including the nursery cook, which had always been a big thing. Food, I think, is really central to a lot of our communities under the Black and within the Black diaspora. And so food had always been a really important thing. And it was really interesting because when I joined, we'd always had very multicultural um, teams of staff the children became and the families more and more black and as I said we use this word black but we need to be really kind of specific about how we're using it in this context or how I'm using it and it wasn't just that it was black Caribbean children you know black African children as well there's one thing that was really kind of uniting the diversity of the black children and families and that was this nod to cultural compatibility there was something about what my mom had been offering in her nurseries, which spoke to being seen and being held in a space which acknowledged the children and families' blackness in all of its ranges. So when I came in in 2004, having done a, um, a period of time working in retail, I had a, a theater and English degree, but had always been interested in kind of mentoring. So I'd done a bit of work in terms of mentoring in secondary schools, but just had a real passion for community and particularly black communities in Birmingham. And it had meant that I was kind of building on a legacy that my mom had laid the foundations for. Because as I said, she bought her first nursery in the late 80s. And this nursery that I went in to manage was her second nursery, which she bought in 1994. So I started thinking really intrinsically about what it meant for black children to see themselves and to feel like they were a part of 
a community within an early year space because family is at the core of what we do. Irrespective of what the myths of the media might tell us about the black family, we know the power of black family and the importance as well of black family. And so it was something that became the essence and the thread of what I was creating with my various staff teams. And so as I started thinking about the journey for the children who experienced 7.30 till six o'clock at my nursery, I wanted to start thinking about what that meant for the practitioners who I was, who I was employing. I wanted to make sure that I had conscientious, proud, confident, assertive practitioners. And it didn't mean that they had to be racialized as black, but it meant they had to have some understanding around cultural competency and what it meant for black children in their earliest formative years. And so to instill the children that we had with those same traits and characteristics of self-belief and confidence and empowerment, knowing that we're working against a society which is inherently racist. We know that we're looking at structural disadvantages in some cases and also in others, just some interpersonal things that were happening in the communities. We always thought about what we wanted our children to leave feeling, whether that be our black children, our South Asian children, our children of mixed heritage, our East or Southeast Asian children, our newly arrived children, you know, what did it mean for those children to leave the nursery every day? How did we want them to feel? And I really focused a lot on what that meant in terms of curriculum or guidance or learning. What were the children learning about themselves and how were we doing that in a very intentional way? So when I started thinking about what anti-racist practice meant for us in a nursery that was predominantly black and brown, there was still this necessity to have a conversation about the children recognizing that although they may share a racialized identity, their cultures may be very, very different. So if you come in and you are Ghanaian, for instance, and then you come in and your family, the heritage is rooted in Trinidad, you know, there are different cultural practices, there are different cultural nuances, which are so important for children to recognize. I'm proud of. And I think that's so important because you know, I always say that it's only in England or Western society that we're actually seen as black. Um, you know, in Ghana, I'm not seen as, you know, by my color, just like the same way in, in Europe, you know, in Italy or France, you're not really seen and viewed by your color. But obviously when we come here, oftentimes we're lumped together as a, as a monolith. And of course it's, you know, there's nothing wrong with a black Ghanaian and a black Jamaican or, or wherever you're from kind of identifying in terms of by race. But it, on the flip side of that, it can really reduce our unique experiences, which we can be proud of, you know, uh, uh, even down to things like West Africans, Ghanaians, we always compete against Nigeria in terms of our jollof rice, you know, in terms of how we cook it, you know, and, and in, in the Caribbean, I'm sure there's, based on what island you're at, curry goat and rice and peas, you know, that's gonna be cooked differently in terms of where you are. But in England, when you're black, it's like, oh, it's oftentimes it can all be lumped together. Um, and it can be a disservice in regards to our unique experiences and our cultural diversity, which is so important to celebrate. We see it at a carnival. Definitely, and our national pride. Who are we? Where is our heritage rooted? And what does that mean in terms of how we form our identity? And so. What I want people to really understand and acknowledge that in Western society, you know, here in Europe, I would say, we live in a racialized society. We are racialized and those racialized identities 
have specific connotations for people, whether we like it or not. There are preconceived notions of what it means to be quote unquote black. There are preconceived notions on what it means to be quote unquote white, South Asian, East or Southeast Asian. And these things are really deeply embedded within the structure of society because race is a construct. So the construct of race means that we have constructed ideas that are evolved, they're fluid, they change all the time. If we're thinking about who is who gets to be white, that concept of whiteness is something that's evolved over time. There were, you know, there was a period where people who were of um, Italian heritage weren't seen as white. You know, people who were Irish, you know, if they were racialized as white and they were Irish, they weren't, you know, covered under this umbrella of of being white. So we've got to really have an understanding of the construct of race, first of all, and understand that it's something that has evolved. It, it changes over time. Similarly, if we're thinking about how we construct the cultural nuances underneath our blackness, this is what you're saying. It leads us to a nice, rich tapestry of who we are. So the things are very nuanced. And you talked about, you know, I have Jamaican heritage. My husband, his heritage is rooted in Antigua and St. Kitts, but he's got a Ghanaian name. And so it's so interesting when you look at how identity is constructed. And he has a Ghanaian name because his dad was a Pan-Africanist. And so when we're understanding what Pan-African means or Pan-Africanism means in, a, in a, the sense of kind of having a Caribbean identity, but understanding, I guess, notions of Garveyism, what that meant and how that influences the diaspora. It's so important we have a strong sense of self and a positive sense of self. So my nursery environment really explored that and celebrated, you know, celebrated the notion of nuance, cultural nuance. And by celebration, I don't mean we had a party. I meant that it was something we would actively encourage the children to talk about and say, how do you feel about your hair? You know, isn't your hair beautiful? If I came into the nursery or any of my practitioners who were black, dark-skinned black women being proud about their skin complexion and talking about how rich their melanin was and getting the children to also appreciate, oh, wow, like I look like her or my mummy looks like her and having that conversation because it helps to build a strong and positive sense of self for black children. And, and, and can we just say, I think you just touched on a really important point there, you know, when we're talking about complexion and how, you know, when you are in a racialized society and we're looking at if, you know, white is looked at as the kind of ideal then and black is the opposite. And then you look at the gradient of getting from white to the darkest, you know, what that means for a lot of children growing up as a dark skin, black woman or, or man, you know, and, and what that means. I, when you're saying this now, I mean, I'm thinking about my earliest um, stages of, you know, understanding race and understanding myself as a dark skin black woman who I'm proud of now. But when I was younger, I always wanted the white dolls and I always wanted to put um, the scarf over my hair to make my hair look longer and thinner. And, and, and all of this came from, I don't even know, I was, I was so young. I was, I was a nurse the age or, or, or reception. So even as you're, you're starting to talk about the story in terms of the work that you're doing to positively reinforce self-image and self-identity, the little black child in me, you know, is, is remembering what it was like when we don't have that, you know, and people can look at people like us now in terms of our generation and be like, but you're okay. No, we're still healing. A lot of us are still healing from not having um, that focus on us as 
dark skin black women and what that meant means on that kind of hierarchy of, of color um, and what that means for our identity and our psyches I think the work that you're doing there um, is so important and I think it's really important for our listeners to understand what it looks like when you don't have somebody doing that work for you mm, and doing it with intention you know you talk about Agnes you know the pigmentocracy shadism as we think about what we're starting to have wider conversations about in terms of colorism for instance and knowing that we're pitting ourselves against one another because of this pigmentocracy if you think about it like a dulux paint chart who is it that we're aspiring to be as as little children and where are we getting those subliminal messages from that the desirable shade is to be white or lighter and where and how those seeds are sown and embedded and how do we destabilize that? How do we disrupt that? Because anti-racism work is about being a disruptor. It's about interrupting what has been presented as the norm. It isn't normal to position being white as the best and everything else that exists around that is other because that is not healthy for a dark-skinned black child, a dark-skinned black girl, particularly if we're thinking about the ways in which society views black women. Because when we're looking at how we're forming a sense of self and what the statutory and non-statutory guidance tells us in the early years, you know, the statutory guidance in the early years tells us that every child deserves the best possible start in life. What does that mean if you have no understanding of the impact of racism? What that means navigating life as a dark-skinned black child? what that means if you're newly arrived, what that means if English is an additional language for you, what that means if you, as you said, Agnes, you grew up in a migrant household, if you have all of these structural things that are impacting your ability to have the best possible start in life, there are things that practitioners need to be engaged with in terms of their learning and development. It doesn't start and stop with child development. It doesn't there are things that we have to make sure that our workforces are equipped with understanding. And the statistics tell us most recently, you know, we have a workforce of mainly white women, but we know the service users of early years provisions are very mixed, very diverse. So we have a range, a whole host of different ethnicity children, different racialized identities of children and families who are accessing. But we even find that in our most multiracial, multi-ethnic, multi-faith, multicultural communities in the UK, the teaching staff, the early years practitioners, the senior leadership is still predominantly white. That speaks to a problem around structural and systemic racism. That isn't about they're not being the best person for the job who's black or brown. It speaks to confirmation bias in hiring. It speaks to having this colorblind approach, which I think many people who are racialized as white think that's a brilliant rebuttal to talking about fighting racism. Oh, I don't see color. It's the most dangerous approach to take and to have. I want you to see my color. I want you to see that I am a woman if I identify as a woman. I want you to hear how I'm speaking. I want you to engage with me holistically, not just take out the parts that you think are okay, for society. And I don't want you to ask me to assimilate either. I don't want to assimilate. I want you to accept me within my, or as an individual, you know, because I come with so much. We all come with so much. We are 360 degree humans and we should be received with that level of humanity. No, exactly. No, here, here. Is, is that the way that they say it in parliament, right? <laughs> um, so 
we've covered so much already and I just knew that we would be having such a rich conversation um you know you started off you've spoken about your mum and you know the nursery setting when did you feel there was a need for your consultancy work because I from what I'm hearing you, you started off as really from a practitioner type of lens you know in a nursery environment and kind of looking at the current environment that you were at physically located in Birmingham, you know, doing the work that you needed to do. And then now, you know, fast forward from 2004, dare I not say it, that's nearly 20 years ago, um, dare I not say it, you are now like the name at the top of all the charts that I see when we're looking at anti-racist work within the early years and within the early year sector. How did you go from you know, the one spot in Birmingham to this national work that you are now doing? So I think about 10 years into me managing the nursery, I decided that I wanted to have qualified teacher status. I wanted to go and start influencing the workforce, up and coming workforce. So who was coming into early years? What courses were they doing at school? What were they learning in college? So I did a little bit of part-time lecturing in some local colleges and universities. And then I also kind of stepped away from the nursery for a few years whilst I went and taught at a local secondary school, a girls' school. And I was employed as um, a teacher teaching health and social care, childcare and drama, because I said my first degree was in theatre, so I was able to teach drama. And when I went along, it was like the graduate teacher programme, it's called the GTP route. I went along this route because I wanted to see what knowledge, as I said, people coming into the workforce were being given at that crucial stage. So it could be, you know, you're 14, you're 15, you're going into year 11 or, or year 10, and you're thinking about, you know, options and think about what interests you and who is teaching these children, these young people. So coming in straight from industry, it was interesting because I had a different lens, didn't I? Because I was coming straight out of nursery and going into being a teacher. And it really got me thinking about how much knowledge is not imparted onto this workforce that's coming into a sector which requires you to have multiple skill sets when it comes to understanding children. And that, I think, was maybe the first kind of drop in the ocean of me starting to think about how I shared my practice as a qualified practitioner, as a nursery manager, as an early years educator, as a lecturer, how was I sharing my practice with these people that were thinking about coming into the early years? And when I started talking about my nursery and some of the work that I did and the work that the practitioners did and the children and families, I saw there was an excitement and I was able to offer placements to a lot of the students that I taught on the childcare course or on the health and social care course. And they were able to match the theory with the practice because I knew the setting inside out, obviously, because it's the family business, but I also knew what I was teaching them in class and I was able to triangulate those experiences. I knew exactly what they were going to be experiencing when they went into my nursery setting. And I was also the visiting teacher. So I would go in and assess them on the job, as it were, as they were training to be practitioners. So I knew exactly what was exciting the people who were coming into the workforce. And it made me think, this is so interesting because whilst I was able to be a childcare teacher it meant I was able to go and see a range of different nurseries because I wasn't just viewing the practice of the, the students who were in my nurseries I was able to go and look at students in other nurseries and of course you're able then to open your eyes you can see lots of different variations of practice and you start to see how different each nursery is 
And that was another thing, Agnes, that made me think, wow, okay, they need to do a little bit of work here. They need to start kind of flat packing people's racialized identities, people's cultures into this one day Eid or Diwali or Lunar New Year, which is more commonly you know, referred to as Chinese New Year. And that's just laziness. And I think it's about understanding, okay, this is how they do it in these other nurseries. This is damaging because it feeds directly into stereotypes, directly into tokenistic practice. There isn't any real knowledge about the children's cultural identities. There isn't really any knowledge about their religious identities if they are, you know, from particular religions or faith-based, you know, groups. And it started getting me thinking, when I was going into faith-based nurseries, um, because there were some, and schools, primary schools, I saw how enriching it was for those children to have a strong sense of self, say if they were Sikh, um, or if they were Jewish, there was a strong sense of self because their cultural, their religious, you know, identities were acknowledged and affirmed. And I realized this was absolutely essential for all children because they need to see how proud they should be of who they are because your culture, your racial, your religious, your ethnic identity, it's also a part of your identity, it's a part of who you are. And so that kind of was the beginning, I would say, stages of me thinking, hmm, little did I know, you know, it's gonna take another 10 years for this, the Black Nursery Manager Training and Consultancy to be born. But I would say it got me thinking about ways and strategies that I could employ for other nursery settings to engage with so that they moved past and through harmful tokenistic practice. And what are some of the challenges that you, you faced? I mean you know, from my perspective, you're doing amazing things. Uh, you know, I've got three children, young children, one who's still in nursery. Um, and, you know, I, I see the need for your work. But for wider society, are there any challenges that you faced in terms of kind of embedding your work? And what have been some of the wins as well that you've experienced too? It's so interesting, isn't it? Because we think about our own perspectives and our lenses through which we see early childhood thinking about our own early childhood experiences. And you were speaking, Agnes, about, I was almost speaking to your inner child. You were thinking about your own experiences because you were able to relate to what it felt like to be that little black girl, what it felt like to be a dark-skinned black girl, what it felt like to not have that affirmation in your early year setting. You might have had it at home, but not in your early year setting. And lens is important because when you ask me about pushback, by and large, my work has been overwhelmingly brilliantly received. The majority of the work that I do is with settings that are predominantly white. And the reason why people have sought me out to do this work is because they want to become more confident about racial literacy, so the language that they should be using, their practice, and to ensure that they are culturally competent and aware so I have done work all up and down the country and outside of the country. I've done a lot of work in Wales. My work has taken me internationally because of the, you know, the pleasures of Zoom. So I've done some work in Geneva. Um, it's meant that I've been able to look at this through so many different lenses. And pushback hasn't been something that I had always experienced, but I was always aware it would be coming because I accept and understand that we live in a racist society. And what that means is that the way in which I, as a black woman, articulate, speak about, present my work 
there is and should be no room for challenge, but I also know what it means to be a black woman who's articulate and standing firm in what I believe in and what I need, I know needs to happen for all children and all educators. I know how society will react to that because we live in a racialized society. I'm a racist society. I'm aware of, should I say my positionality? And so some of the pushback that I've seen actually hasn't come in drips and drabs. It's come full force. And it's come from establishment. And so when we're talking about the establishment, we're talking about the media, we're talking about right wing, um, you know, sectors of, of society. This isn't new to me because I managed a nursery that was predominantly black and brown. We would receive emails from far right um, white supremacist groups that would have all sorts of, you know, racially derogatory language in there, you know, telling us that we need to close down, we need to move, we need to get all of the monkey children out. I experienced and we experienced, you know, systemic racism from local authority, regulatory body. You know, we were always, when I say we, me and my mom, we were always challenging that, but we understood the reason why, because we're a black mother and daughter team. My mother's been long established in this game. We have a very successful kind of set of businesses and the system doesn't like that. The system doesn't like that. And so when you're very aware and you're very cognizant of what your presence means in a racist society, it means, as I say, you're ever ready, okay? And so being ever ready means that when I come into this space as the Black Nursery Manager Training and Consultancy, so I've decided to call my business the Black Nursery Manager Training and Consultancy. For some people, the title of my business alone gets their back up. And this is yeah. the thing about engaging in conversation now, because for too long we have been hiding behind what would be perceived by um, certain sectors of society as palatable ways to describe us. So Bane, you know, we don't want to say black, we don't want to say white, we'll just say Bane because that's more palatable. It means we don't have to name anything. We can just flatten everything down into just non-white, right, you're just Bane. And me coming out and saying, right, so the business is called the Black Nation Manager Training and Consultancy and still having people engage with me. Big local authorities, educational trusts, schools, nurseries, different organizations engaging with me fearlessly. That started to show me something. I was like, oh, people are really ready for this conversation. And birthing this company in the first lockdown was because I noticed what was happening politically with how the government has historically always treated the early years sector. This has been a result of years of underfunding, years of really disrespecting the early years as a sector. This workforce is undervalued, it's underpaid, it's never been given the due respect that is required for the work that we do. And so when the pandemic hit, if you remember at the start, early year settings were expected to remain open. Yeah, We weren't given any PPE. There was an expectation that we would just stay open for children of frontline workers. And of course, yes, we all have to root together as a society, as a community, but who was at risk, you know? And what did that mean for the children who had to come into nursery and the parents who had to go to work? And I started thinking about my team because my team at that time was predominantly black and brown. And I started mm -hmm. thinking, is this fair for me to open my nursery and keep it open? When the, the announcement came that, oh, early year settings can open in June, the June of 2020 they said the government said you can open back in June they closed yeah. us in March and they said you can open back in June yeah. and I was just like mm, mm, no this is not sitting right with me 
because we didn't know what we know now, I guess, about COVID no. and the way in which it spread. But there was a lot of anxiety, fear. People were dying. There was. There was. It was that real out here. Like, you know what, when I when I reflect back those two years when everybody was running to the supermarket and the time when I knew that it was end times, <laughs> literally, was I was driving in um, somewhere in Southwark, which is like by Old Kent Road. And I saw this guy on the street selling and um, walking down in the car selling toilet paper as if I was in back in Ghana. He was literally- Yeah, back home, back home. There was none, there was none. <laughs> And I was like, what? I'm in England, big old England. And people are walking and banging on people's car doors to sell a toilet paper. And, you know, I think it's very important that we context what you're saying here when we're saying that you were frightened to open up Frightened and told the local authority. So I am frightened. And we were also due to have, um, we had an offset inspection just before the lockdown. I remember it was November 2019 and we had been um, uh, awarded uh, as an outstanding setting prior to this. It was really interesting because I noticed that the more vocal I was getting about the work that I was doing, the more unapologetic about the work and knowing that, you know, this is a space which really values all children, but wants to instill a sense of pride in our black children who we see are suffering when they go into primary school. Yeah. There was things that were happening to black children that weren't happening to white children. And there had been many a time where me and my deputy manager at the time, shout out to Karina, my deputy manager at the time would be going into schools when our preschool children had left our setting to go and assist white teachers in their engagement with some of our black children, our black boys specifically, when they were going into, you know, reception year one. And it was wild to us because we were like, this child is absolutely fine when they were with us. Like, I don't understand what is happening in between that transition from preschool into reception. You're trying Can to tell me that. that word? Can we say that again when we talk about the transition? I think, I think you really need to hone in on that. I say that as a mother of two boys, uh, one aged five and three. You know, oftentimes a lot of children can feel really safe in the nursery setting when it's done well, when it's done well in terms of what you've described. And then all of a sudden, they're plucked and they go into a, a different organization, a different setting. And we see a U-turn that we've never seen before. And parents are voicing these opinions and becoming um, stigmatized, you know, in terms of, and racialized in terms of stereotypes, uh, you know, like, oh, you're the angry black mom or black dad, or you're aggressive or you're whatever when they're, when they're raising these concerns. And to hear that, you know, one of the services that you were offering, you know, because that's not something I've really heard of, is that... But it's not even the service that I was offering, Agnes. It was just, this is important work for me. I need to go in and see the teachers. I I would have a a communication with the moms. But it's even more so because what you're describing here for me is what teaching was about historically you know that passion that you know is not about it's it's a calling it's like you know my life's purpose you know and obviously when those children have left your care you're still concerned it isn't like okay now the new cohorts come in so those other children they're they're not in our care no more and so we don't we no longer not that you no longer care but it's no longer our concern it's to hear how you know you're you're still carrying the mental you're still feeling it 
in your heart about how are my children doing? This and is cultural for us. Cultural, exactly. It's a village. This is cultural for us. It's a village mentality. Child, yes. And it's that, Agnes, you hit the nail on the head. These are, were, continue to be my children. Some of those children are 18. They are my children. Some of those parents still engage with me on the Black Nursery Manager training and consultancy platform. I have the community behind me. So it was interesting because I said when the Ofsted judgment came and then we were re-inspected and the level of anti-blackness that came with the Ofsted inspector was so telling. And so when I look at the structures and the systems that are set up to mm -hmm. enable us to fail, it means that we can't start looking too deeply into representation politics. We need to be very conscious of this. Just because somebody might be from a racially minoritized community, it doesn't mean that they share our pain. Just because somebody is also racialized as black, it doesn't mean that they have our same values politically. It doesn't mean that they're coming from the same place. So we can't expect people just because they look like us. You know, it's really important we interrogate representation politics. We have to make sure that we are digging deep. And so I say all this to say, we had a really anti-Black Ofsted inspector who'd come in in 2019 to come and have a look at what we were doing. And of course, the first thing that that person saw was that everybody was black and brown. And it was almost as if you could see it was palpable. The response that this inspector had, it was you know, when we talk about feeling racism is to know it. You feel when somebody's like, oh, hmm, hmm. You get all of those energies. And I felt that immediately. And it was really interesting because, you know, I've told you about my passion. You feel my passion. You know the, the impact of my work. You know, any member of my team that was there at the time will tell you, that's Liz. Any of my friends will tell you, that's Liz. Like, this is, I'm Liz 24-7. I remember the way and the disdain and the disgust that that Ofsted inspector had for the setting. And it was really apparent to me that this person is not interested in anything that we are doing. That person had come out with an agenda. That person had come out with confirmation bias and wanted to prove that these little black children were very unruly and didn't have any behavior, didn't understand that they weren't supposed to be running around. Everything was health and safety. Everything was a problem, you know, and you realize the power that the system has over you when you are regulated by a body which does not even acknowledge the necessity of anti-racist work. It talks about having um, unconscious bias training dangerous. So it was no surprise to me when that Ofsted inspector decided, you're not outstanding, you're definitely inadequate, and was like, right, so you're inadequate, that's it. Wrote a report that they wanted to write, um, and, and then they said, following that lockdown came. So Liz, let's pause, so you went from outstanding, like, to inadequate, here, to inadequate, in a day, in a day. In and a the, day. You know, what, you know what warmed me? The petition, the energy from the, the families of the children. Because we know black women. We know black women. We know the black women who would have been sending their children to the nursery and the black men, the black families. They were vexed. Vexed because they knew exactly what was happening. And I was like, you know, it's fine. You know, it's to be expected. This is what it is, you know. People come and they might be brown, but we understand that anti-blackness is the foundation of racism. Okay. Exactly. They might be from a racially minoritized group, but we understand that anti-blackness is the fertilizer for racism. Exactly. We and understand how our communities more, are viewed. 
And even sometimes, you know, when we're talking about people who are racialized as black, but they can even have more hate for the work that we're doing even more so um, than anybody else. I've forgotten that film now, and I think it's got Denzel Washington and there's this, um, oh, there's a movie that's, that was out. Anyway, long story short, it's, it was like a military movie and there was a, a lighter skinned black guy. Um, and anytime the black guys, other black guys laughed or did anything funny, he would get really angry like, how are you making us black people look bad? This is why nobody respects us. And they're just having a laugh. Like, and it was that hate for self and it was always being projected on others. Um, and what we're describing there, Liz, is unfortunately, you know, I know you're being too polite to say it, but there's a, a popular saying, isn't it? That all skin folk are not kin folk. Um, and I suppose in short, you know, it's, it's understanding what that means in a racialized society. Um, and how sometimes we can have people within our own community whose role is to uphold those systemic, um, the systemic challenges. And we see it a lot within maternal health. We see it along with, you know, so many different other sectors. So within the early years, it would not be immune. Never. And once you're part of an institution, you do everything to ensure that you meet the needs of that institution. And if that means denouncing your blackness, your brownness, in order to do your job, you will do that. And we saw very strong evidence of that during our inspection. So of course I appealed that, um, told them about themselves, let them know in no uncertain terms, I understand what's happening. Because my mom has been so long established in the sector, it was really interesting. So I remember having a call with the person who was the complaints handler at Ofsted, who knew me and my mom um, very well. And their rebuttal was, oh, it couldn't have possibly been that because that person has had unconscious bias training and I at that point I was like hello <laughs> okay hello okay no problem and um you just realize how much the system can be stacked uh against you but not using that as a deterrent Agnes because I said you know what from hell or high water, this sector is going to know about the work that I have been doing with my multiple teams over this 16 years at that time. So when lockdown happened, and then I saw that Boris was trying to say that the nurseries could reopen in June and we could all go back, that's cool for Unaman who wanted to do that. That's fine for that nursery over there. Good for you. You see me with my prim primarily black and brown team, I just wasn't willing to take that check. I am a black woman. I wasn't willing to take that check. And I said, you know what? I'm not opening back and I sat down and I had the best two three months because you can imagine being a nursery manager and being the manager of a family business you eat breathe sleep shit this this is your whole being this is the legacy of a black woman who came from Jamaica at 14 settled in this country bought a business in the, the late 80s a dark-skinned black woman had three children and a husband and did the thing Big up Yvonne my mom, all the time. Yes, but knowing, big up Yvonne, they're not, nothing couldn't stop her. And I just talked, I talked to myself about the energy that my mom had. And I said, yeah, I'm going to actually, the report came through and it said inadequate. And I was like, oh, look, guys, we're inadequate. And people were just like, this doesn't make any sense. And I said, and I'm not, it's fine. Because I need to pause as well. When you say... Um, that you know you're not willing to be open with your black and brown stuff. I think it's also really important to context around the time, you know, in the beginning we were told that black and brown, that COVID didn't impact black and brown communities. That's what we were being told. And then very quickly we found out that actually 
black and brown communities were disproportionately impacted by COVID. So there you guys are on the front line with a predominantly black and brown staff, right? Being asked to go back out there with inadequate PPE, knowing that you're disproportionately impacted by COVID. And I think it's really important to just add that narrative in. There were so many other different layers. And then on top of that, the systemic structural issues that you were being faced at the time, you know, I definitely can see how you would have come to that conclusion. Definitely. And we had a, an amazing early years consultant. Um, I'm not going to say her full name, but her name is Sarah. And Sarah knew how I was feeling at the time. But Sarah, a woman who's racialized as white, was just so phenomenal and so supportive of the work that we had done. Even the early years consultant, you know, within the early years, t- couldn't believe. They were like, inadequate. It's just the math ain't mathing. So it was just like, I was very much like, yo, it is what it is, isn't it? Like, I know what this is about. Whether you not want to admit it or not, <clears throat> I know what this is about, but hear what. So sat down for a few months, you know, that first summer of the first lockdown, it was so beautiful. It was hot every day. I um, was newly married as well. So I got married in the summer of 2019. And, you know, I was just enjoying wife life. And I then was like, I want to start a company. I want to start talking about what I do. And the conversation, of course, had been happening about, first of all, the global pandemic of COVID and the global pandemic of racism. And not to sound cliche, but to me, I was like, yes, George Floyd had been murdered. Black men were being murdered in the UK. Black men were being murdered by the police, by the way, in France and other parts of Europe. Black men were being murdered by the the police and other systems as well, other institutions globally and I just thought what does this mean if you are a black boy what does it mean if you're in nursery and you're already being you know we're thinking now a lot more about and talking a lot more about adultification but really to see adultification in the context uh, the original context into which you know it was birthed adultification has a a racialized lens it's it's contextualized when we're thinking about black children the adultification of black children has long been established within society and adultifying black children means that you're almost robbing them of their childhood and if we think about some of the disproportionate figures related to you know police interactions and brutality and the way in which as I said to you that transition between nursery and school there is something happening there is something shifting and we have to be able to address that and so I started thinking about building courses that practitioners could come to if they wanted to, and they could pay to come and sit, because that was the birth of the Zoom season as well, in a little webinar with me. And let's just talk about race. Let's talk about the impact of adultification, the impact of systemic racism, how to explore race with children in the early years, inclusion in role play. Let's talk about why we need to make sure that in role play, we're not doing this. Let's dress up as an Indian person. Let's dress up as a black person. Let's think about how we can make sure that inclusion is at the heart of our role play spaces and ensuring that children are using their imagination to be whoever they want to be. Let's move away from these tropes and stereotypes. And also I started thinking about how we promote black boy joy. So I have three core courses, how to explore race with children in the early years, inclusion in role play for the under fives and black boy joy. And within these three courses, there were three um, sections, so three 90 minute sections, and you could come and you could engage with that and pay. And it just started growing. And I thought alongside that, I'm gonna really build my Instagram platform. 
and that platform grew and grew and grew and grew and I was like wow people are really engaging with this and they're paying to come on these webinars you know what I was doing one a month and I was like okay this is interesting I was getting great feedback Agnes and I was like this is really growing into something got myself a mentor shouts out to Ricardo um got a website built made sure that I set up and registered the business so I was officially a limited company and as they say the rest is history I'm, I'm just over going to your Instagram account now so let's let's put this into perspective here so literally two years ago you decided that you know you're going to change course I don't want to say change careers because you you know you you kind of use the knowledge and the skills and the insights that you've kind of picked up over nearly 20 years and you decided to use that in a, in a different way but still equally as impactful but obviously making it more national and international um, and just two years ago at the beginning the beginning of the pandemic you decided to really push forward with your Instagram page and you've got like you know over 22,000 followers and for me that is you know the work that you're doing in 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 the biggest scheme of things, we could say that's actually quite niche, you know, to have 22,000 plus followers following you, specifically knowing that your focus is on the early years and anti-racism and the work that you're doing. And it's grown like that in, in literally 24 months. You know, if ever there was a need for your work or to demonstrate the need for your work, then there is, that is community. And you know, anybody that just wants to have a flick through your work, I mean, through your page, you'll see that, you know, the kind of people that comment on, on your, on your post are from all different backgrounds. It's not a largely um, black cohort of people that are actually cheering you on. Actually it's so diverse, you know, in terms of the kind of people that are engaging with your work and engaging with your posts and, you know, or even recommending, I, I saw um, Joelle, Pregnant and Screwed, you know, she she done a fantastic, um, shout out to Dwelly, who's also a, a Glow Mama winner, award winner. So hopefully we'll have her podcast coming out. Um, but she couldn't think, stop singing your praises enough in regards to some of the training um, and the work that you've done for them. Um, so I think, one, of course, there are always going to be challenges. Um, and there's always going to be people that don't understand or people who internalize your success within themselves and then you know, react in a negative way to you. Um, but that's only a small part, really. That's a very small myopic part when we compare it to the actual growth and the actual success and the feedback, which is ultimately the, the final part, uh, the feedback that you're getting, not only from those that are attending your courses and your workshops, but then also from a Glow Mama perspective, you know, winning you know our rewards you know you had thousands we have thousands of people that that participate in in our votes so we see the the, the data the stats the analytics it's not a um we don't have a governing board or a, a panel that select who are the winners it's literally people's choice so we see the votes coming through and they came through in their thousands um, and you know, and I, and I share that and I want to reaffirm that because the work you are doing is about anti-racism and I can just imagine as a, as a black woman, the kind of, you know, you do, you get so much praises, but those negatives, as much as Liz, you're so articulate and, you know, you're doing amazing work, you're also human. And I just want to reaffirm, you know, to you that you are doing an amazing thing. You know, I'm a mum, I've got three children, I needed 
the kind of work you're doing. I don't want to say how many years ago because I don't want to reveal my age on here, but <laughs> you know, some decades ago, um, I needed somebody like you that was advocating for little Agnes as a two-year-old, as a three-year-old, as a four-year-old, you know. Actually, in those early years, I went through so much, um, so many different things, which is a, a whole podcast for another day. Um, and if I'd had somebody with your lens that was educating some of the um, professionals um, for which I was in their care, that could have been an out, a different outcome for me, not just as, an, as somebody who was young, but somebody who had to navigate the trauma of those experiences in their 20s and in their 30s. So what you're doing is actually helping to, to solve structural and lifelong problems. And I know that might seem dramatic for some people who are listening, but it's not for somebody like me who faced those challenges. So I really want to affirm that for you. Thank I want to you, thank Agnes. you. Yeah, and I want to thank you as well on behalf of, of the community. Um, as a mother, um, as somebody whose children have gone through the nursery setting, your work is needed, your work is important, we need more of it. Um, and in that, in that kind of same train of thought, I want to ask, what are the plans? Because you've grown exponentially within literally 24 months, in a time when we were in lockdown, in a time when we didn't really have the agency to really go out and connect and meet with people face to face. This is what you've achieved. And now the world is opening up. You said in the beginning, you know, you're even getting international bookings. So, you know, in Geneva and, and so forth. What do you see as the future now for the Black nursery manager? Oh, I've said this on a, an interview that I did on the weekend, actually. And I was like, world domination. And I said it kind of tongue in cheek. But honestly, I think this work can really impact policy. I think this work can really instru be instrumental in the shaping of the lives of a community and group of people who were born in 2020. Born in 2020, so imagine another 18 years, who those young people will be. I imagine that the future of the Black Nursery Manager Training Consultancy will be in every room when it comes to deciding on policy for children, all children, centering the experiences of racially minoritized children in this country. I always say this, and I'm gonna say it again, my granddad did not come to this country in 1954 for me to be still having this same conversation. This shouldn't be happening. Actually, my role shouldn't exist. Actually, I shouldn't have had to set up a company which delivers anti-racism training for the early years. Actually, we shouldn't be thinking about how come these children are having different experiences to white children. Why are black mothers four times now more likely to die during childbirth than their white counterparts? Why are we still seeing the ways in which black boys are navigating the school system as it being peppered with assaults on their human experience as, as people? Why are we still seeing things through this lens by which society is telling people who are racially minoritized, black people in particular, that we're not good enough? that we, we just need to work a little bit harder. Why is that still the rhetoric? And I need to make sure that, as I said, the future of the Black Nursery Manager training and consultancy, I think most importantly, continues to empower other Black women to take this by the absolute horns and drag it to where it needs to go. Whatever your desire, your passion, your fire, what you know drives you. And for me, it's the early years sector to take that without fear, but 
absolutely in faith and do the work that you were intended to do. This is my calling and nothing can take me off this path. I, I, what do I, this mic drop. If I had a mic right now, it would be mic drop. Um, I'm not going to leave it on this point, but I think it's an important um, question to ask. For those that are listening and thinking, oh, here we go again. We're just talking about race, you know, within the early years. Children are so young. Nobody, you know, they, they can never exist. Racism between naught to five, you know, all of that kind of um, talk. What would you have to say to, to those that really don't see a need for this type of work at all? Children notice everything. How comes we're able to say that children are like sponges and they absorb everything? We're able to say that children are pointing to that person on the road and saying, mommy, daddy, why is that person's hair like that? Why is that person's hand like that? Why is that person got red trousers on? What children notice everything. Are we to assume that they're not noticing the colours of other people's skin. Are we to assume that children notice everything apart from racialized identities? And also what is attached to one's racialized identity because society is constantly pumping everybody's minds with how we should start conceiving and perceiving different skin colours and how people are racialized is a fundamental part of the way in which the fabric, the, 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 the very thread the tapestry of what the society is built on children are absorbing those messages all the time so when children say mommy how comes that person's skin is brown your reaction to that question is going to tell the child everything they need to know and if you are not equipped and ready to come back with a well the reason is melanin is something that blah blah, blah. and you know you just build on that you don't react by saying don't say that don't ask that that's not kind it's not a very nice thing to if you are reacting to a question like that, with that response, it's a problem. We need to be able to have open, honest, frank conversations with children about the ways in which there are variations to how people look. There are variations to how people live. We need to start using the resources that we've got to help us have those conversations. We need to move towards having an anti-racist society. Before we even start thinking about the early years, a lot of my work looks at society because the early year setting is not existing in a, you know, this space where it's just the setting and nothing outside of the setting impacts. We're part of societies, we're part of communities, we are in every nook and crack, we're everywhere. And so I think if people are still meeting me with this approach where this isn't necessary, children don't notice race. I always say, and I've seen this going around, if my child is young enough to experience racism, your child is young enough to start having conversations about race. If you as an adult have grown up with racial trauma and you have known what it's like to experience racism between the ages of say two and four, that inner child needs to be healed. You need to see that healing and you need to recognize that somebody's advocating for that and it was never your fault, it wasn't your problem. If you recognize that the world is in a place of absolute dire straits, because you see politically what's going on, you see the way in which kind of culture wars are being stoked, you will know that's because of absolute ignorance born out of this hatred, out of something so ridiculous when you think about it, the color of somebody's skin. But it isn't just that, and as I said, these preconceived notions of what it means to be racialized in different ways is the poison in our society. And if we don't talk about it, the poison is going to continue to spread. 
how can we can talk about everything else we just can't talk about race we think about the protected characteristics we can talk about every other protected characteristic but we're not supposed to talk about race no 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 not on my watch I love that, Liz. So Liz, for anyone listening in right now that's thinking, when are your next sessions? How do we book you? We want you to come to our nursery. Or even if there's parents, do you do like uh, consultancies or advice for maybe a parent who's trying to navigate, you know, race um, and, you know, all the kind of different intersections within race that we've discussed in, in this podcast? How do they find you? Start of this year, I started something called the Anti-Racist Surgery, which is every Monday I have appointment slots that people can book in. You don't have to be a practitioner. This is for parents. This is for senior leadership. This is for people who have got a general interest in the work that I do. People who want to, quote unquote, pick my brain. You can pay £30 and come and spend 30 minutes with me. That's a pound a minute. And just have a conversation. Present to me what your ideas are. Talk to me about how you perhaps want to start this kind of work yourself. If you're a student and perhaps you're studying, because some of the things that I've really kind of been sharing with people and what people have been sharing with me in these 30 minute anti-racist surgery sessions have been phenomenal Agnes some really powerful things so I've got the anti-racist surgery if you follow me on Instagram at the black nursery manager or um, on Twitter which is Liz Pem T-B-N-M I share all the time about where I will be speaking delivering training what webinars I'll be putting on that's the a really kind of quick way of finding out what I'm doing and also if you go to my website um com, you can join my mailing list and you'll be updated as to kind of upcoming things that I'll be doing so an array of ways that you can keep yourself up to date with my movements wow 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 so I will definitely be heading over to your website and signing up to your mailing list if that's all that you take from this podcast, please head over. Um, we'll make sure that the website is in the bio. So literally all you've got to do is click on the link and head over um, to the website where you can subscribe to the mailing list. You know, this is people power. This is a movement and we all just need to get behind and, you know, just ensure that this movement grows because Liz, as I said, you're doing some amazing work. Now, we're not going to just let you off the hook like that and just run away quickly. I've got a quick fire question for you. Just very quickly. Um, so in, in three words, describe what it means to be a glow mama. Go. Inspirational, beautiful, and about it. That's two words. <laughs> Don't worry. We'll, we'll, let, we'll have about hyphen it. We've just <laughs> crafted it. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the Mama Magic podcast brought to you by the Glow Mama Awards. Please share and rate this podcast and follow us on social media. And you can do that by heading over to Instagram and typing in Glow Mama UK. And if you want to keep up to date with all things Glow Mama, head over to www.glowmamaaward.com and sign up to our free newsletter.